Greetings, dear listener. I'm Ian McKenzie, one of the co-hosts of this live series, The Pandemic is a Prism, which aims to bring a mythopoetic lens to bridge divided worldviews. This series of 12 conversations ran from Maybon in September to the solstice in late December 2021. Each week, listeners were able to join my co-host Zamir Danji and I live alongside our guests for an emergent session that explored the pandemic from a multitude of angles. After each session, Zamir and I recorded a recap to harvest the key insights. We are now happy to release the entire series as a podcast, available to all as a gift. If you would like to access the original videos of the conversations, as well as order the forthcoming book, head over to agatheringofstories.com slash pandemic to learn more. And now, enjoy this session of The Pandemic is a Prism. to 12. We will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Now I'll count up to 12, and you keep quiet, and I will go.
Beautiful. That was Keeping Quiet by Pablo Neruda. Written quite a number of years ago and yet somehow seems exactly this moment we're in. I am Ian McKenzie, co-host of this journey, and I'm with my good brothers Amir Danji. So good to be here with, uh, with you, Ian, and with everybody here who is listening today. Mm. And this, of course, is the first in our new series, The Pandemic is a Prism. And um, what, what a moment to be kicking this off. Absolutely. There's a, there's a line that came up in our conversation when Ian and I were talking about this, and it really touched me. And that was in a, when, you, when we live in a time where anything that you believe, you can find evidence to support it. How do we true to each other? How do we true to each other? And, and I love this analogy, Ian, of what you gave about truing a spoke in a wheel. Maybe you can articulate a bit about what truing means. Mm. Hmm. Well, I was uh, graced to be given some understanding of this from another teacher who will be on a forthcoming episode of this series, Stephen Jenkinson. Um, but what he shared was this idea that in an old understanding, to true was actually an achievement. Like it was a, it was a relational skill. And we still see that term to true, truing used in things like building, right? Where you actually have to true to uh, objects to each other. And so in that sense, the old ability to true in a situation, in a moment to craft meaning um, beyond, let's say one's own personal truth um, invites the possibility of connection of a bridge of some kind. And, um, and that's so much about the intention, I think, with these conversations. Absolutely. So we're here as uh, listening ears. And as we said, we've invited people who really have had their ear to the ground and uh, have been truing themselves through the process of listening to both the human world and the non-human world so we can invite perspectives that really enrich and expand and support our work of truing together. So that's what mm -hmm. we're here for. And um, why don't you share who our first author is? Mm -hmm. Sure. Just before I do that as well, I just want to encourage all of you listening live to this conversation to yeah, continue to leave your comments and questions, um, stirrings in the, in the comment thread, which we see here as, we, as this conversation unfolds. And um, we'll do our best to try to weave in uh, possibilities and, and questions as they might come up uh, into this journey today. And so without further ado, I am very pleased to welcome Charles Eisenstein to our stage very soon. Um, and just a few words about Charles is that, you know, I'm deeply grateful to have known him now for over a decade uh, when I first did an interview way back uh, with his work uh, after reading the 500 page a saga of uh, the scent of humanity. And um, since then, we've collaborated a number of times uh, on his book, Sacred Economics, as well as, you know, others. And um, I'm just uh, struck from my observation of just how um, consistent, actually, that Charles has been in his message over all these years. And, um, and yet now applying uh, his, his perspectives to this current pandemic time uh, and to see the kinds of reactions and the kinds of um, you know, in maybe some realms, the lens of interbeing, the lens of um, a more beautiful world, you know, is more acceptable, but in others it's not. It's just fascinating to watch as the tides of the culture shift and change. And so it felt appropriate to bring Charles onto the first conversation here to help us both speak about his own uh, inquiry and, and offerings in this realm, but then also to 
in a way set a tone for the journey to come. And uh, with that, I'm uh, happy to welcome Charles. Welcome. Hey, Charles. yeah, thanks, Ian. Uh, hi, Zamir. Happy to be here with you. Mm. Yeah, wonderful. Um, <clears throat> I'd love to start now with this this uh, sense of it, or the title itself, right? What does the title invoke in you? I mean, we have a certain take on it, but I mean, when I say the pandemic is a prism, uh, what might that uh, stir in you in terms of this um, this kind of inquiry? Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate uh, appreciate that metaphor. Because um, like you were saying in, in the video that you shared with me, it does resolve uh, some things that are all mixed together in, in our culture and allows certain um, streams of ideas to be more readily visible. Uh, it clarifies some things that, that, you know, had all been mixed together in an incoherent white light. And now, now we're seeing um, certain ideas, certain tendencies, uh, certain, I would even call them timelines <clears throat> in um, greater contrast. So, I mean, I could go into more detail if you want about that, but. Uh, yeah, well, well, I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to actually just jump to, uh, you wrote an essay, The Coronation, right? This came out earlier on in the pandemic, I believe it was March of last year. And my reading of that moment, uh, again, you know, tracking your work for quite a while, that seemed to hit, you know, a whole other uh, uh, sphere of people that connected with your writing. I mean, I think at the time, uh, the CEO of Twitter even, you know, to tweeted it, I think I saw it. So in that sense, I'm curious, like, what was your intention behind that writing at the time? Uh, like, and if you could just give us a brief overview of that piece, which was lengthy, um, but, you know, what was, what was that marker for you in that moment? And why do you think it sort of struck a nerve much wider um, at that moment? Yeah, I was uh, <clears throat> at the time, and I mean, and still to today, but at the time I, I was greatly alarmed by what I saw happening which was basically the, the expression of things that I'd been warning about uh, and dreading for 20 years. One of the themes of my writing way back to The Ascent of Humanity, you know, which I wrote in the early 2000s, was what I called the program of control, hmm. which applies a generalized version of the technical fix to all of society. The technical fix being essentially using technology to solve the problems caused by previous technology, uh, using new pesticides to, to deal with the insect outbreaks that are caused by the ecosystem ruin caused by previous pesticides, for example, or taking one pharmaceutical medication after another, and then it gives, gives you side effects and you take another one to suppress the side effects and or or to uh bomb terrorists which causes more terrorists to spring up and so you bomb those terrorists etc cetera, etc cetera. this is all examples of a technical fix and um uh, writ large uh 
the idea that that human betterment comes through exercising better control over the world. And when the control that you exercise causes new problems, well, you go and control those too. Mm. So, so this whole thing, uh, taking extreme form in a new regime of control under medical auspices, where the most important thing in life becomes to stay safe, where safety becomes the paramount value, and and where where uh, everything is mortgaged to that. It's you know as if we have a, a a new fourth branch of government called the CDC or whatever, whatever health authorities, and and, and so I'm like, oh my god, it's happening. Mm-hmm. Because I'd been writing about that, like I wrote even a few years ago, I wrote an article called Zika and the Mentality of Control, mm. which which was saying we can justify anything if we if we put keeping safe from a germ paramount. Mm. And so I'm like, oh my God, now it's happening. And and so I just brought together some of the various threads in the uh, regime of control, including the ideology of that, that someday we'll reach a paradise when we um, uh, finally perfect our, our monitoring, surveillance, tracking, labeling, quantifying, and algorithmic administration of the entire world. Mm-hmm. So I was putting it in a much larger context. You know, it's not just about public health policy. It's about a whole, I mean, I could even say it's about what we are truing ourselves to. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like to, I um, spent a little time um, as a uh, carpenter uh, mm-hmm. working for a builder and became familiar with the sense of truing that that you were invoking just now mm-hmm. to, to true a line, to true a board, to bring it into alignment with with other things, and so when I think of truth, I'm like, okay, not so much in terms of objective fact, but what does this align me to? Mm-hmm. And and yeah, that helps a lot when I'm parsing various information sources around COVID and various lines of conjecture uh, and these almost different realities that we seem to be offered, uh, like which one is aligned with who I am becoming and the world that I want to live in. If I can um, interject with something, Charles, that this, you know, you, you spoke of this regime of control, but it's not presented that way. You know, it's not presented by, hey, okay, we're this regime of control. There's a narrative behind it. And it's this this story of progress, right? That with this, this reg- the control is, presented as progress, right? And that's how we sort of all decide to participate in it, right? Mm -hmm. Or you invite people to participate in it. And, you know, I was listening to a talk that you said that, you know, something about what's happened with the pandemic is it's also given us a glimpse of what the endpoint of that kind of looks like, right? We're all living at home and we can order everything online. We can meet online. We can have things delivered to us. We, you know, have as soon as there's a medical problem, we can quickly mobilize a vaccine or something to be able to solve it. I mean, 
it's, you know, I like how you, you articulated that, that is giving us a glimpse of what the endpoint looks like. And it's giving us pause to say, wait a minute, is this really a direction that we want to go? Right. Yeah. When, yeah. It's, it's, it's making a choice that had been implicit and unconscious into something more conscious. And maybe some people think this is a, a great future. You know, everything's very convenient and you are as safe as possible. Uh, safety and control go along with separation, with insulation. And this is, this is like one of the deep myths of our civiliza civilization. I would even say more than our culture. Can you tease that out a little bit more? Because you really articulate the story of separation versus the story of interconnectedness. And without going into, you know, a long explanation of it, like, what is this core thing? How does it feed into one story versus the other? Basically, if you understand yourself as a separate being in a world of force and mass, in a world of, of you know, particles out there randomly subject to the forces of physics uh, and, and in a universe that is inexorably degenerating toward entropy uh, where the forces of nature are arbitrary and there's no intelligence in the world outside of ourselves but human beings are the sole intelligence and the sole source of order if you believe all that that's and that's separation you know the separate self in a world of other in a in, a, in an inhospitable, impersonal, dead universe or unliving universe. If you accept that, then of course you're going to be a lot better off if you can protect yourself from the random forces of nature, and if you can exert control over them and harness them to your to your desires to your benefit. Um, and, and this is true as, as individuals, but also as a species. So the story, the, the myth, this is a myth, okay? I'm not going to say whether it is true or not, or, quote, just a myth. That's not actually a helpful way to think about it. It is a myth. Therefore, it carries a truth that can align us with something. Okay, the myth says that human beings once upon a time were helpless, superstitious, ritualistic, but because we have big brains, we developed more and more capacity to control the world outside of ourselves through technology. And that as this capacity has developed, we've become better and better off longer and longer lifespan, safer and safer, more and more powerful. And that someday, and this is going to continue in this glorious, triumphant ascent of humanity. And someday, maybe we'll be able to exert complete control on the world, on our genes, on molecules and atoms, and we'll be we'll enjoy immortality and we'll be able to engineer suffering out of our brains through control of neurotransmitters and everyone can get an implanted chip to interface with your neurons and provide you only the best experiences and any germ, any other organism that is out of place, we can banish, banish that, we can destroy it uh, and we'll have perfect health because 
life is fundamentally a war of each against all. And the, the, the other beings, the bacteria, the viruses, the germs, they're not, they don't care about you. In fact, they are happy to maximize their self-interest at the expense of yours. So that, so that, that separation, that, that sense of separation automatically leads to a notion of progress that is built on control. That, yeah, that's, I hope that wasn't too long. That's the basis. Yeah, thanks for that, Charles. You know, I as I see as well this um, this mythic undercurrent. I mean, I think it maps very well onto being able to understand like what are the quote two sides of the current you know abyss. I heard somebody actually say recently the Great Divide. Actually, calling that this moment the Great Divide. And if you could map on what is the mythological undercurrent of each quote side, for me, I feel like you can see that the uh, the the let's just call them, quote, the anti-vaxxers. The pro-vaxxers, I don't think quite understand that, you know, in, in between the sense of, well, you know, the vax is good and, and why would you get it and this kind of understanding, that the, quote, anti-vax has a sense of this, what has become known as the technocratic agenda, right? Which is what you were just saying, like this idea of ultimate control and, um, you know, global unified ID and tracking and like all these things. And... To the pro side, it seems like, what What are you saying? Like, no, it's just this. But the anti side is saying, no, 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 it's all of this, right? And I think that that contributes to the that sense of disconnection, you know, between those those sides, not understanding that, that actually that's a kind of, that's what the story seems to be. And I heard a term recently, right, which actually was leveled, I think, somewhat against you um, around the time of coronation, which is this idea of conspirituality, right? Which uh, my understanding is that it's essentially saying that there's these two impulses within, I don't know if it's within humanity um, or consciousness to either vector towards a sort of global endpoint of ecstatic communion, right? And often this is known as the sort of, uh, you know, flash enlightenment uh, uh, versus the, let's say the nefarious, um, but exact same uh, projection outward to an endpoint that in this case, those nefarious is, is this one world technocratic agenda. And in some ways they seem to be mirrored right of each other, that both of them sort of project outward to these possible futures. And wherever someone situates themselves within that great divide is sort of where it bubbles up to the surface of, you know, these levels of conversations, which online seem very divisive, obviously, right? Like, you know, you immediately can tell, you know, quote, who's on what side online, because it polarizes almost instantly along these lines. And so, I mean, this conversation is meant to sort of unearth this mythic substructure to try to find, yeah, what is it perhaps in the let's say, quote, the anti-vax side, even though that they're not a uniform, you know, just as the pro aren't uniform in their beliefs. But what are the, say, I don't know, shadows of the anti-vax side that are showing up, which I know you touched on in your recent essay, um, the, the sort of final one in your series, which was saying, um, again, if you could maybe speak a little bit to that. Uh, yeah, like... As you were saying, there's a lot more at stake here than public health policy around vaccines or even the medical um, understanding around vaccines. Because it would be like saying, like, suppose we're, we're having a, uh, sorry, there's a dog barking. 
we have a, a new dog. Um, suppose we were talking about uh, glyphosate, okay, about Roundup. And, and and we're having a debate and you're saying, Charles, you're an anti-glyphosator anti because you think like that, that we could just stop using it and, and we'd be fine. But, but, you know, here's like, these farmers are not stupid. You know, these companies are meeting a real need here. If without glyphosate, we're going to have a lot more weeds. We're going to have lower crop yields. People are going to starve. Um, and, and you're saying that glyphosate isn't safe, but you know, there's, but you're cherry picking the data. It's actually pretty safe. You know, people aren't dropping dead, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like, okay, we could have that conversation and I could debate you simply on glyphosate um, as, as the issue. But actually what I'm more interested in is an entire system of agriculture. And I might, I might actually grant that if we keep our entire industrial system of monocrop agriculture intact, then we do need something like glyphosate. And we could argue maybe is glyphosate better or is dicambra better or is some other herbicide better? Like we could have that conversation and maybe we could try to find safer ones. But ultimately, I'm actually willing to, to grant that if we hold every other variable constant, then maybe we do need glyphosate. But that's not the conversation we should be having. Mm. Really what it is, it's about an entire system of agriculture. And if we had a, an ecological, diversified, small-scale, localized, organic, regenerative system of agriculture, it would not even be a question whether to use glyphosate or not. Mm. Same thing with the vaccine issue. To even make it about vaccines already gives away the game because it's about an entire system of medicine and a whole social structure. If we take for granted that, say, um, half the population is suffering from chronic disease, autoimmunity, obesity, allergies, addiction, and that, that therefore generate the comorbidities that are responsible for 90-something percent of all COVID deaths or that are implicated in 90s. Okay, if we take all that for granted, and and exclude from the conversation other ways to be healthy that depend on relationship to say the plant world for example to the microbial world like a whole it's really a whole other paradigm of health that's no longer about that no longer defines health as the integrity of a separate self but but understands that health happens as in an ecology through relationship and community. I mean, look at a potted plant and how delicate it is and how you have to give it just the right amount of water and just the right nutrients for it to thrive. Compare that to a, a dandelion in a field, which is literally like almost unkillable mm. be because it is in community, okay? Mm -hmm. So th th this is, and you can maybe uh, and apply that, you know, analogy to, to the health of ourselves. 
that's the conversation we need to be having. So, so interrupt you for yeah. a second, Charles. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, there's a, there's a large gray area here, right? And that's what it's hard sometimes to navigate. And and where, you know, I was listening to something you said that even if a narrative is disempowering, it's a relief because it provides us a sense of control, right? Because it's a way to organize our experience towards a predefined meaning, right? And and that's what we're up against, right? That in either side, there's there's a there's a narrative there, right? And 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 if we're you know some people who if we look out at the world that some of our technological progress has been very empowering right i mean not to idealize the living in a village life without electricity without heat without some of the comforts that we've come to appreciate in life refrigeration or transportation or the ability to communicate right and so people from from the progress side will be like well what are you talking about do you want to go back to living in mud huts, so on and so forth, right? And that we have been able to address certain diseases that, you know, have been, you know, a scourge in humanity, and we've learned how to be able to address them. Where do we find the line of where progress is something that is some is something that we can truly embrace, that isn't leading us towards that end point, which is something that we don't want? What is a mm -hmm. what is a narrative of progress that truly is rooted in our human values and how do we organize around that right because we need to organize around something otherwise we're going to be in these two camps all the time okay um so just to start where you began um in a time of the breakdown of sense and meaning uh totalizing theories such as conspiracy narratives have a great appeal because they replace the certainty that the uh, narrative of progress once gave us, the narrative of ascent with a new certainty. And it explains everything and you, you know, don't have to be uh, unsure of what the world is and who you are anymore. Uh, however, that's not actually really a step into the unknown. And I think that that like the question that you raised, you know, what about good progress? And certainly we don't want to go back to living in mud huts. Again, as with glyphosate or as with vaccines, you can't take these things, you can't isolate them as variables. So, okay, if we can hold everything else constant, then I would rather live in my nice house here in rural Rhode Island than I would in a mud hut without electricity and running water in rural Rhode Island in this society as we know it. But I don't know, have you ever lived in a mud hut in places where everybody lives in a mud hut, where there is no running water, but everybody goes to the village well, and that's where social life happens. I was um, on our online community, somebody told a story, actually, she was working in development and they went into, into some village in Africa and they're like, guess what everybody, we're gonna make your lives better because we're gonna bring running water to every house. And the villagers said, no, we don't want that because what holds our village together is everybody goes to the village well. Okay, in my neighborhood here, I don't have a village well. And when the hurricane hit a couple weeks ago, there was no running water, it was a pain in the ass 
couldn't wash dishes, couldn't flush the toilet, you know, because our, our well is one, is, we have our own well, it's electric. Um, okay, so hold all that constant and yeah, I want running water. Yeah, I want electricity. Yeah, I want, uh, you know, I don't want to live in a mud hut. But that's too narrow a question. Really, the question that that the current crisis is opening up is how do we want to live? What do we want to true ourselves to? Exactly, exactly. So like, if you want to find the happiest people in the world, I bet that they live in mud huts. Read about the Hadza, you know, read about the Karo. Uh, I was, uh, Stella was telling me about, about the greeting, way people greet each other uh, in the Andes, uh, where, where coca is a sacred plant and you, you run into somebody you haven't seen for a while and you don't just say hello and shake hands. You do a whole ceremony where you where, where you share a coca leaf, you chew it together. Like saying hello takes half an hour. Right. But that happiness is 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 because of the way that they are embedded in relationship between themselves, between the land and between each other. Right. right? I mean, so then the question is, and, and so you you ended your your question to me with how do we, how do we? Um, for me, it's a question of any choice, any change that I'm contemplating, is it a step toward the restoration of relationship to other humans, to, to the world through my senses? Or is it a step away from that? Which timeline is it on? Is it on the timeline of separation and control? Or is it on the timeline of reunion? Mm. I, that's actually a really beautiful point um, because on one hand there's multiple multiple sides to that question too right um, and just to say that during this part of the conversation what came to me was just to look at the words immune right to be immune is to obviously or often used with uh, the vaccines and that paradigm but I'm trying to think of like another word that is similar but I hadn't really connected them which is commune right immune and commune and actually how at odds they seem to be with each other. Um, you use this term that, you know, what is a step towards relationship or rebuilding relationship? And in some ways I could say that, let's say the pro-vax side would say, yeah, this is rebuilding a step towards being able to be in relationship with my people again, you know, and seeing my family again and letting the human realm, like I could definitely see that. Um, on the other hand, I, I don't see the vax paradigm uh, granting a pathway back to relationship to life. Like, I just don't see it. I don't see it actually leading towards more, uh, you know, quality of relationship to, to, to death even, right? And to, to what does it mean to be, you know, in the infinite game of life, um, you know, invoking the finite and infinite games. Like, I don't see that paradigm leading to more connection or more, more wisdom in that regard. It just seems to be, again, another step towards the paradigm of control. Um, so I just wanted to add that into the conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah, for me, it's pretty clear. It's, it's, I, I, I just feel, uh, repelled by the whole thing, by the whole idea of, you know, you need your immunity update just in the same way that you need your Microsoft windows update every six months, mm. uh, in perpetual dependency, uh, on technology. Um, mm. it, you know, I don't, I don't even care if, even if they're they're not harmful, which um, 
you know, the more I learn, the more convinced I am that they are harmful. Um, but even if they're not, that's still not the vision of society that I that I feel attracted to. <laughs> I don't want to live in that world. So, so we're in a time where different people have really strong feelings around the world that they do want to live in and the narrative that they're holding. And there's clashes. I mean, we've seen, you know, people who were once friends now become enemies, you know, like they're not talking to each other. Families are not seeing each other, communicating with each other. I mean, things that we held is like, well, these are, these are true bonds have been sort of ripped apart in the process of this. And, and I remember a question that was asked to you about what humility is, right? And you said one thing that's common of different narratives is that, you know, they all tend to think that they're right, right? The people who are carrying the narrative and that when we, when we look at narratives other than our own, rather than listening to, you know, by listening to these narratives and taking them on their own terms, that's humility. So there's, there's, there's this, the ideal that we come into dialogue and conversation around the the kind of world that we want to create and the values we want to embody and but beneath that before there's even a willingness or in the absence of the willingness how do we listen with humility to the narratives that others are holding in a time such as this you know what's the art of doing that how do we do it well while still standing with our own personal conclusions Yeah, humility is a side effect of sincerely seeking the truth where you care more about learning something that you hadn't known before than you care about having been right. Uh, and it comes from also understanding, I mean, here's a, it's a side effect again of another truth, which is that that people do, people make the choices that they make as a result of the circumstances that they're in. Mm. Not that the circumstances determine their choice, but it comes from those circumstances. The choice comes from those circumstances. So it's a, recogni a recognition that if I were in your circumstances, I might do very well, might do as you do. Mm -hmm. So then from that comes curiosity. Okay, here you believe something totally different from me. What is it like to be you? What has contributed to your belief that so contradicts mine? What I find, though, when I go into this is that the process of belief formation is very rarely ah, anything remotely rational. It has to do with psychology. Uh, and in the last essay series that I spent pretty much all this year writing, um, I uh, related to mob psychology, um, the, the desire to belong and the instinctive um, fear that we have of being part of an ostracized or victimized subclass. Um, um, a scapegoat. Uh, it's actually in human history, it's been not only uncomfortable, um, but dangerous to diverge from group values and norms. Because when something goes wrong, who do they blame? Who do they offer up to the gods as a sacrifice? 
as a representative of sin, as a representative of evil, as a representative of wrongness and criminality. It's those who deviate from the group norms. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of that happening today. So when people cleave to one or another of these polar uh, opinion identities, there's a lot more going on than some dispassionate, rational evaluation of evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we don't recognize this, then, uh, I mean, as the saying goes, you can't reason somebody out of a belief that they didn't reason themselves into to begin with. Mm -hmm. Charles, you know, one thing that comes up here too, which is largely on the response, I think, particularly to this essay, right, is this charge of creating false equivalencies. And um, I mean, I'd love for you to maybe articulate what you understand a false equivalency to be. Um, and therefore, like, why, why is that sort of leveled in this case? Uh, or, and how is that actually in some ways perhaps a bypassing of what's possibly below the surface, right? Of what, uh, particularly in that essay, I mean, you were trying to speak to, but... Um, and maybe yeah, Ian, you can just articulate that key point for people who might not have had read the essay to like what that might be and, and why. Okay, well, my take on it is that I mean, you, you, the whole essay series, I think it's a four-part series, touches on fascism and the anti-festival, which I thought was actually a really fascinating inquiry. Um, but this idea that the, uh, like the, the true festival in its sort of cultural function was to actually bring about, um, again, this is my interpretation as well, a kind of, I don't know if cathartic is the right word, but a kind of almost sort of upending of the social norms uh, temporarily as a way to really create and sort of shake loose, um, you know, structures or relationships or things that had been maybe become too confining or too bound um, in, in almost like a Dionysian, you know, sort of um, route. And in fact, in the modern age, as festivals have, have become more commodified, more um, sort of uh, de-stripped of their mythological real function, that impulse still remains in humans. And so in a sense, the lockdowns became a kind of anti-festival, um, storing up that energy that like needed to go somewhere. And now it's being uh, sort of turned against, in this case, the outgroup of the mainstream, um, which you made some connections to the, the Jews and the Holocaust, which again is such a fraught territory because uh, that's where you got leveled a lot of this false equivalency. People saying, come on, that's outrageous that that's actually what is going on here. And again, I'm curious to hear your take on why you understand that that was the critique, um, but maybe what's below that, that actually is still being missed. Uh-huh. Yeah, the critique in, in a way itself was a false equivalency. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I never said, oh my God, what's happening now is just like the Holocaust. We're in the midst of a new Holocaust. Mm -hmm. What I said was that the, um, the social dynamics, the, or maybe the social psychodynamics uh, that took extreme form in historical events like the Holocaust, like the pogroms, like the witch hunts are also operating today. They have not reached that extreme yet, but we cannot pretend that we have outgrown mm. these dynamics uh, because here they are operating. So um, Can you tease out how that they're operating, like in the way in which you see them operating in a succinct way for people to be to be like, okay, I see that, right? Well, the basic pattern is that is that 
in times of social stress, when divisions and rivalries are on the increase, um, the that the okay, maybe I'll I'll backtrack even a little bit. Um, so Rene Girard, the philosopher, uh, identified the biggest threat to early human culture was reciprocal violence. He called it tit-for-tat violence, blood feuds that would just get out of control and tear societies apart even before they really had a chance to get going. And the way that societies dealt with this was that they would focus all of the, the, the pain, the revenge, the bloodlust, all of that, they would focus on a, on a victim. Everybody would unite in, he called it unifying violence. Uh, against a victim who would then be killed. And because the, the um, tension was discharged with this act of murder, the problems would go away. The rivalries would subside. It seemed like it worked. Therefore, the logic was if, if killing the victim um, uh, solved the problem, the victim must have been responsible for the problem. And so this becomes mythologized and institutionalized in terms and becomes human sacrifice, which was pervasive um, in uh, across many, many societies. And, and, and so this basic solution to social tension of find a identifiable subclass that are not fully of society, that will not be avenged. And you um, persecute them, you murder them, you ostracize them, you get rid of them. And then the problem is solved. This pattern is very ancient. And um, fascist leaders can hijack that impulse by turning it against whatever victim subclass is convenient for them, and they can ride that into power. So one of the um, uh, main characteristics uh, of the uh, sacrificial victim is that they are unclean, they are polluted, they carry an evil spirit. And if you associate with them, then you are at risk of becoming one of the victim subclass as well. So if you're friends with one of the witches, if you've been associating with one of the, the communists or one of the enemies of the people, uh, then you too could be sent to the gulag. You too could be burned at the stake. So you better uh, distance yourself from them. Well, this, so, so you can see how in the age of COVID, um, I mean, for one thing, with the disease itself, it's, it's all about contagion and contact tracing. And, and if you've been near this person, then you have to quarantine too. But then also on the level of opinions about it, like if you, uh, you can get banished from social media, not only by um, saying things that mark you as the... Um, um, the, the dehumanized, it's part of the dehumanized subclass of anti-vaxxers 
or even unvaccinated people. Uh, but even if you post something and or post a link to a website that espouses those views, then also you can get uh, deplatformed. So so it's like it's almost like you know whatever uh, Joe Mercola or Robert F Kennedy or these people like they have cooties. And if you associate with them, it's just like in grade school, then you get the cooties too. And the rest of the class won't have anything to do with you. So these, and, and like, yeah, like you can explain all of these things by saying, well, you know, the COVID quarantines and lockdowns, that's not because of mob dynamics. That's because of there's an actual pathogen and the the censorship and, um, and the deplatforming on the internet, that's not because of mob dynamics. That's because we need to protect people from, from disinformation and fake news. And like, you can have all kinds of justifications, but it still fits the pattern, doesn't it? And because it fits that pattern so closely, you have to ask, is there something else going on here besides reason? <laughs> something and i and i think yeah especially given the amount of of emotional passion that it stirs up like there's something primal at work here mm. and something frightening thanks you charles um you know I, I what comes to me again is this sense of the question that gets leveled as well against the quote conspiracy side is well how could so many people be quote in on it right like how could all the scientists how could all the politicians how could how could all these people be in on something you know governments can barely organize you know anything like how could they possibly you know all be in on something like this and so for me i really tried to understand yeah how is it that people can participate in something unawares uh and yet somehow be be willing right and i think you're speaking to it here as well, but also, you know, looping it back to earlier on in the conversation around like a certain paradigm of, I don't know what you call it, rational materialism, um, which is is always looking to exert more control. Maybe that's like one way to say it. And you wrote an essay called The Conspiracy Myth, which I think touched on this. And so for me, again, I wanna, in some ways speak to how the quote, the anti-vax side that I've done research in and spoken to, you know, there does seem to be a strong thread of there is a nefarious elite at the top, you know, Bill Gates or whoever's you know, in on it. They're, they're doing this on purpose, this and that. And yet you had a really, I think, helpful um, frame on this, which um, I mean, I could just read it here, actually, if, if and this could be jump off point for this uh, question. Uh, but you said in the conspiracy myth, I explored the idea that the controllers of the new world order, order are not a conscious group of human evildoers, but are ideologies, myths and systems that have taken a life on their own. It is these beings who pull the puppet strings of those we normally believe to hold power. Um, but they, yeah, you go on from there, but basically that essentially it's sort of an emergent property of the system is the way I take it. And so again, I feel like that's really important also to maybe spend a bit of time on like, how is that possible that, you know, people can be involved in something again, unawares uh, on, on, on all sides. Yeah. So it, could very well be uh, that there are some highly psychopathic individuals among the elites. Which the is true. Like I should say, yeah, that's yeah. very likely true. Like yeah. as in, you know, the hierarchical systems, you know, put people in power right. that have those certain yeah. 
So the that Paul yeah. the Stalins, the Hitlers. I mean, there's evidence that we live in a system that actually rewards psychopathic behavior in terms of placing them in high positions of political or industrial or military yeah. power. Yeah. Yeah. And so there could be a conspiracy among those people um, to, you know, dominate the world. But if so, the question still remains, why are they able to do that? Given that there must be very few of them, as you were saying, there can't be a lot of people in on it. You know, and you talk to most, I mean, pretty much every doctor or scientist or even politician that I've known personally or, you know, billionaire, I'm not seeing a lot of fiendish evil there. You know, I'm seeing people who are pretty much like everybody else who might have some, you know, blind spots, who might have some, you might be very good at justifying everything that they do, uh, but, you know, not like, like gibbering. Mr. Burns. Ghouls, like Mr. Burns. Yeah, like that. <laughs> so, so you know, and, and even Bill Gates, like, I mean, I think um, he's responsible for a lot of harm in the world, but probably he believes himself to be doing a lot of good in the world. Hmm. Probably he believes in this vision of bringing all the world into one gigantic data set that can be rationally administered for the good of all. So of course you want to track everybody. Of course you want to have biometric interfaces uh, in people's bodies that are implanted so that you can protect them and protect others from contagion. I mean, this whole vision makes sense in a way. And that makes it a lot harder to fight what's happening because if you set up, say, Bill Gates as just someone evil, you're not going to understand him. You're not going to understand where he's coming from. You're not going to understand the, the systems and ideologies that will give birth to another Bill Gates and another Bill Gates and another Bill Gates, even if you tear this one down. Mm-hmm. So, and at the same time, yeah, there could be, um, you know, satanic elites, human trafficking elites, you know, who, I mean, it kind of even makes sense that in a world that is run along principles of domination and control, that these would take an extreme form in certain shadows of the society. Um, and there didn't, wouldn't necessarily have to be that many of them. Like, look how a mob works. All you need is a few ringleaders to say, go lynch that person over there. And then maybe a bunch of people, they go along with it enthusiastically because they've been primed with an ideology that says those people over there are unclean, okay? And then the majority of the mob, they're like, well, I don't know, but it looks like everybody else thinks that they're unclean, you know, and need to be lynched. And I'm not going to speak up. If I speak up, I'm going to get, and everybody can't be wrong, you know? And, and, and then, and then there's those who are like, oh my God, this is terrible. Uh, but I better keep my mouth shut in silent protest. So all those people keeping their mouth shut, make it look like the mob is unanimous mm. when actually it could be a very few manipulative, cynical leaders who may not themselves even believe in the guilt of those that they are inciting the mob against. So take that and, and write it large. 
to our whole society, it could be something like that. And then it brings up the question again, um, what allows the mob leaders to be so to be so effective? What is it in our psyche, in our in our way of being human that allows us to be manipulated manipulated like that? Hmm. And this takes it back to these in group out group dynamics, these these Girardian um, uh, ideas that I that I was sharing before. Well, you bring up a, what I see too as a almost like a a current that runs through largely the quote anti-vax side, which for me is this idea of body autonomy, right? Um, and I see it a lot in the literature, this idea, you know, my body, my choice on the signs, you know, consent. Some people bring out the, like, the Nuremberg trial of, I guess it's like do no harm um, in the medical practice. And again, a lot of largely people say, oh, that's a false equivalency. That's not what's going on here. Um, but for me, I'm curious about that. Like, what is it in this quote anti-vax side that has this real adherence to this sense of body autonomy as like the, the fulcrum, because I think it speaks a little bit to what you're saying. It's almost this idea of I'm free from being co-opted by this technocratic agenda, right? There's this idea of like personal liberation from that system. Uh, and yet at the same time, sometimes I also see these, again, these shades of, well, is freedom simply the freedom to not be of consequence to other people? Like, because the quote pro side says, well, look, your freedom is infringing upon my safety, right? Of you know, getting the virus if you decide to be unvaccinated and mingle with us. Um, so I'm just curious, where does that come from in your understanding, this this uh, adherence or curiosity around that? And Zamir, you want to join I, in? I, I just want to add to that, that we can't not take note that we live in a time sort of post Me Too movement. I mean, there's this deeper sense of what you don't have to, you know, buy into an, you know, the quote unquote anti-vax narrative to now stand in the power of, well, you know what? consent is something that we have socially accepted as something that is very, very important. It's being discussed in a mm -hmm. wide scale, right, around the autonomy of our bodies, right? It's it's something that has, has permeated the social consciousness, right, right to consent. And even the way in which we're thinking approaching abortion and the outcries that we have when women's bodies are not offered that freedom, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is something that I feel like it also has a deeper undercurrent. Mm. Yeah. Okay. You could um, imagine a society and may, may not be a bad society where individual freedom is not the highest priority uh, in which it's generally accepted that your body is not your own that it belongs to the collective and the collective has the right to tell you what to do with your body for the good of all. Mm. To some extent, every society believes this um, and enforces norms and taboos uh, that, that, you know, like, I mean, in some societies, you know, everybody has certain skin piercings, you know, and certain, the like, does certain practices on their bodies. Uh, and it's just, it's like, well, it is actually a religion. Not every society has freedom of religion or even holds that as an ideal. And there's no law of the universe that says that our society has to have that. Really what we're talking about here 
is freedom of religion. When, when, when you understand mm. medical paradigms as part of a mythology, mm. then, then and, and you notice like how congruent medical procedures are with ritual practices. I mean, even like wearing a mask uh, or injecting a potion into your body, undergoing a, you know, a violation of body integrity um, to, to put some magical substance in yourself. Uh, like these are, you know, a little, it's a little ordeal that you go through and everybody does it. And that's, that's like, that's, that's why people are so offended by the um, unvaccinated it's not because they are actually rationally afraid that they're going to be a greater risk. That is becoming more and more obvious as the evidence accumulates that the vaccines aren't working very well, uh, that, you know, the, the, the vaccinated are, are like the vaccines wear off after a few months, you know, you have to get one booster after another, what like Israel is now experiencing like the highest COVID rates in the world and they have the highest vaccination rates. I mean, there's all kinds of cracks in the facade of the vac, you know, get the vaccine to protect everybody. Um, it's not entirely rational. There's something else going on here. So really the question is, um, but, but, but see, that's in a way irrelevant. Like, like I could say, okay, um, you're not actually protecting others by getting vaccinated. But what if you were? Like, what if, interject yeah. that this thing that it, it's so on point around religion and, and medical and, and the medical view, right? It, it's not, uh, an issue that's very close to my heart is circumcision, right? I mean, if you're, if you're a Jew or if you're a Muslim, you know, you have this medical idea of this is clean to remove the foreskin of a child and it's extremely traumatic and yet you have to undergo it anyways and we institutionalize it as if it's all right without a lot of evidence true or for i mean that just sort of blew my mind being like wait a minute we're doing this today right right and it's religious privilege that allows you to still enact actually a an a violating act upon a small child because of a of, because of belief really mm. Yeah. Yeah. So it comes down to what society, what kind of society do we want to live in? And and if it is one that continues the Western liberal idea of of freedom, freedom of religion um, and, and personal freedom and holds that as a high value, then, yeah, that's not consistent with mandatory vaccination well yeah. uh, you know this this brings up to um lissa rankin's response to the mob mentality and the unvaxxed which you know it was she made a bunch of points as well again on the false equivalencies and things but the other point that i thought again i really tried to mull over was this idea that she said well look you know those people the unvaxxed they're given a choice it's still a choice right you can essentially go in your home and never come out again or you can mingle with society and get vaxxed but it's still a choice, right? And so for me, I was kind of like, I don't, that doesn't feel like a choice. It feels like coercion, right? And at the same time, I understand that rationale based on this idea that, um, that the, the consequences, you know, of harm and, and, and the virus getting out and stuff. But so I guess what I'm trying to understand is that it feels like this bifurcation is happening in society um, between essentially, yeah, the, the 
society that says, look, to be here, to, to engage with and to be a part of the society, the modern society, you need to play by these agreements, right? And then if you don't, though, then you're not allowed. And in some ways, it's sort of inviting a like alt, alt society to develop uh, alongside it, which, again, you know, makes me think of Brave New World, which is very much what uh, happened in that story. Um, that the the sort of modern world is sort of doped up on soma all the time, and yet there's these like wild, you know, humans that are sort of living quote more naturally. I mean, do you see that also as sort of what, what's happening? Yeah, uh, I mean, we, we've been talking a lot about this. It's like okay, we're not allowed to go to bars, restaurants, gyms, concerts, et cetera, et cetera. So well, let's make our own. Um, we're not allowed to participate in the normal medical system. Okay. I mean, we haven't really been participating in it anyway, you know, or a lot of people have been kind of half in, half out, and now you have to choose. So we're, we're talking about um, creating parallel systems of uh, even for food, um, for medicine, for our children, to educate our children. Okay, they can't go to school. Well, let's make our own little, little schools kind of under the radar. Mm. Uh, and it might even extend to alternative money, uh, to alternative legal systems, you know, um, uh, a parallel society. And maybe we just kind of go our own separate ways and find a way to cohabitate peacefully mm. on earth. Um, two separate societies. I don't know. Like, um, How do we cohabitate peacefully? Because if you look at what's happening now, it doesn't look a lot like a peaceful cohabitation. <laughs> no. Um I mean, I'm not sure what you mean by how do we do it? <laughs> well, I, I could add too that, you know, my understanding of, for example, Starhawk's fifth sacred thing in that mythology that I understand, yeah, there is a culture that, you know, sort of develops is more, you know, quote, natural. They develop these magic powers and they have a, their own sort of sanctuary. And then the outer culture, which seems to resemble much more of a, you know, dominator system comes for them. I mean, I haven't read the whole book itself, but that's my understanding of the narrative. And so that's hard to not see that kind of scenario playing itself out too. Right, that um, sort of eventually that 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 society would come for the others that are, you know, kind of quote trying to live their own, and it's happened, of course, again and again in other communities, and of course, you know, on this very land, the indigenous folk and peoples who are still here but have lived under the erasure, you know, of this colonizing force for you know uh, hundreds of years now, um, that it, that it's happened and it is happening certainly to them uh, already. So I'm not trying to equivalence to this is what's happening quote to the unvaxxed as well, but it's like that's the the tone of it is sort of like you're with us or you're, you're erased. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it might come down to, you know, conflict. Um, it's interesting what's happening in Australia now mm. where, where there's, it's not so much in the mainstream media, but there is significant uh, civil resistance to the lockdowns, which have been going on for, you know, months and months and months. Uh, and, and, and even though it's right now a minority that have um, anti-lockdown, anti-vax, anti-mask, et cetera, et cetera, opinions, there's a lot of people, this is how the mob works, you know, there's a lot of people who kind of go along with it because it looks like everybody's going along with it. 
And when there is a visible large minority who aren't going along with it, it gives people license to even question it. Mm. And because it's really hard to go against the crowd. You, you, that, that human nature is, you, you know, you see something, if you see something at all out of the ordinary, the first thing you do is you turn to your brother Ian and you're like, hey man, did you see that? Mm. Was I just imagining things? Did you see that? So that impulse to 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 ask our fellow human beings, what what are you seeing? That impulse directs us toward the media, which is biased, which is essentially uh, 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 the 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 mob perspective. So so to to um, free us from that stranglehold, sometimes all it takes is you know a minority of brave people to say that hey the emperor has no clothes, and to say it loud, loud meaning that they're not cowed easily into silence. Mm. So, so. Well, how does one, that, let me say this too, that how does one, uh, whatever side, and again, I want to say to the listeners too, that, you know, for at least on our side with Samir and, and myself, we're not saying that therefore either quote side is actually, you know, we got to decide, but it's more like, how do we stand in on either side uh, and be able to to make contact still, right? To be able to stand without ideology on either side, um, that that sort of um, yeah creates more of the polarization. Um, and so that's my curiosity for you as well. Like, how do we stand in yeah those those places? And even you, you know, let's say whether someone is vaxxed or not, how do they both be allies toward a more coherent story that we're truing to? Uh, It starts with cultivating the habit of holding other people as full sacred human beings. Mm. The common habit today is that if somebody disagrees with you, um, somebody holds a radically different belief about the world and different values, our training is to see them as an inferior version of a human being. They're not as intelligent, they're not as open-minded, they're not as spiritually evolved, they're not as conscious, they're, they're ignorant, they're stupid, they're evil, they're, they're, they have some psychiatric diagnosis, they're narcissists, they're this, they're that, right? They're, they're, traumatized. They're, yeah. they're traumatized, right? They're, otherwise, how could they not agree with us? <laughs> that, um, that kind of polarization, that, that, that habit of diagnosing evil as the product of evil people, uh, which draws from, from popular culture, draws from Hollywood, uh, you know, the, the reason why a bad thing is happening in a movie is almost always because of, of an evil person, you know, the Joker or Lex Luthor or, Thanos or something, you know, some bad person is the cause of evil. So when we see a lot of evil happening in this world, we start looking for the bad people. That habit gets in the way of, in fact, that habit actually makes us vulnerable 
to manipulation makes us vulnerable to mob dynamics. Both sides seeing the other side as bad people. So if we want to change that, we have to start at the foundation, which is to rehumanize each other. And that means to ask questions with genuine curiosity, um, with courtesy, with respect, uh, and with, with authentic listening. And with the openness to be like, you know, I'm probably wrong about something I fervently believe too. Why wouldn't I be? And I'm open to changing that. I'm open to learning. When we carry that openness, then it's infectious. It's it's a willingness that gets transmitted to others. You know, what, what you're saying really makes me think of my grandfather who died almost a year ago. Um, and he was such a voice for 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 tolerance, for understanding amongst religions. He was an, a, a, an Indian man who came through colonial India, but he worked for the British government and he worked wholeheartedly within that. And he 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 was in the he was in what was what is now Pakistan during the time of the partition and him and his family, you know, as he was a small kid with his sisters, even with a one year old child had to flee on train hiding so that they wouldn't be massacred as they went over to India. And he grew up in this time where, you know, that kind of that kind of religious intolerance was was a reality for him. And so having experienced it, he put so much of his life efforts in trying to build understanding, seeing the consequences of what happens when we hold rigidly to these kind of viewpoints and other each other, that it causes mass dislocation and rips the fabric of, of life and of value and of meaning and of love. And I remember when he was telling me that story, you know, a couple of years ago, I, imagine, I, I remember thinking to myself, wow, I'm so blessed to live in a time where that will never happen again, where I live, mm. you know, and I used to really feel that. And then since the pandemics happened, I've had these moments being like, wow, the things my grandfather was saying, I'm sort of seeing things like that unfold before my eyes. And, you know, I thought that we were protected or immune from ever playing that kind of intolerance out again in this new kind of medical religion in a way of what you're speaking. And so it brings me pause and it's part of my inspiration in, in being part of this dialogue, because if we don't do this, we can repeat the patterns of history and the things that my grandfather had lived through and worked his life to, to try and ensure that we don't live that again and why he came to Canada. It couldn't mm -hmm. play out again. And so I'm just feeling yeah. that at the moment. Yeah, these historical events, we cannot see them as, if we you know extract them and see them as, unique events like the Holocaust, for example, as a unique events, as a unique event caused by anti-Semitism, like then we're really missing the lesson. And, you know, when people said, oh, you're dishonoring the victims of the Holocaust by using that as uh, an analogy or using that to inform your ideas about the present time, I'm like, no, I am honoring the victims of the Holocaust by, by um, taking that lesson of history so that it may not happen again. Uh, Identifying you, where it actually comes from. Well, what you showed, I think, through your essay and what's been coming forth here is that there's these deep archetypal forces within the psyche of human beings, both individual and collective. 
and that we are in relationship with these and that it takes certain events and situations to evoke those archetypal tendencies to come out and play again. And that it, 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 it happens when we're sort of not looking because that's how this, the, the unconscious works, the subconscious works. And this is where a mythopoetic view is so important right where mythology sort of illuminates things that are existing within the subconscious or unconscious realms right that that will that will come forth in what appears to be a new event but it's really a replay of a an old archetypal aspect of the psyche of human beings that is coming to the surface again so you know we have the opportunity and and young is pointing that to us and you know the ancient religions are pointing that to us is to become conscious of these elements and that so long as we become conscious of them and we can see them playing out, we can be in relationship with them, right? Because these are powerful forces. So that's what I feel is coming to the fore. And part of our work is, is naming them and teasing them out so that we don't become victims to them unconsciously. Mm. I appreciate that. I mean, I, I feel like what comes to me is this... Um, ability to relate to quote these times again in a way salvaging it from a rational materialistic medical paradigm and begin to see that there's other ways to relate to this moment and just agreeing one story i mean I, I think i read it was a small village in india i believe it treated the visitation of covid as a deity right as if a deity had come among them and they would create like a shrine and give offerings right and again just that idea or that, that I mean, it's more than an idea, just that ability to treat this being as a deity uh, or as a visitation versus a sort of, you know, mindless virus that's just happening and we're at war with it itself already jostles free what feels like, again, this binary, right, between uh, it's, it's bad and, and we got to, you know, attack it, stamp it out. It's all war mentality. So, Again, I, I feel like we're, we're getting close to the end of our conversation as well. And how do, how do we navigate this time by being able to, you know, to bring forth this um, prismatic ability to relate without falling prey to these ideologies? So, okay, I don't think that, that what they did in that village in India is actually different than what we're doing as a society today. It is a deity. Uh, we don't call it that uh, because our mythology, the Western scientific mythology, has a name, the word deity means something, you know, unreal, mm. uh, something extra material. But in fact, <laughs> SARS-CoV-2 or Corona is this invisible spirit that possesses people and makes them sick and that can only be seen with the sanctified instruments of the scientists. And if you are possessed, you have to go through a exorcism uh, and you have to stay away from other people lest the spirit possess them as well. And now there's like a, but, you, but if you wear like a magic charm on your face then it'll keep the evil spirit away. And I mean, the whole thing is totally congruent to what we call superstition. So I don't think that, that like basically the village in India is just casting it as a different kind of deity than we cast it as. Mm -hmm. And, and there are other mythologies, other 
prisms, other lenses, I would say, that through which we can understand this being that has come among us. But, but the thing is, Charles, is that, you know, all science is not superstition, though. I mean, so there's a scientific basis in which we do things. Where do we see where it becomes uh, ideological or where do we, because the fallacy of people who are, who are invested in science as a paradigm don't see the religion behind it, the, okay. the, the white lab. All, all, and the, all science you know, is not super. Listen, all science is not superstition, and all superstition is not superstition either. Yes, these <laughs> other cultures are not as stupid as we would like to think. Their superstitions are based on empirical observation, mm -hmm. uh, and and they're they're just as smart and just as rational as we ever were. So. The, the, the reason of science and the ritual that we call an experiment, all of this depends on metaphysical assumptions, such as the isolability of variables, such as the measurability of anything real, such as the repeatability of experiments independent of the intentions and beliefs of the, of the experimenter, like um, of a objective reality outside of ourselves that maintains constant uh, laws that's a, that's an ideology too. The whole thing is a mythology. That doesn't mean that it is bad or wrong or not useful. So we, we have to stop setting up this, this dichotomy between what's science and reason and, and stuff on the one hand, and then what's religion on the other hand. Mm. That's not the way it is. Mm. We have to, to, to say, okay, um, like, like, like you can occupy a, a mythology and operate within it and and achieve certain things and and experience yourself in a certain way and build a certain kind of society. And then you can occupy another one and you'll see other things that were totally invisible and you will have it from the first one and you will have powers and capacities that do not exist hmm. in the mythology you had been in. Like my wife is a healer. She routinely cures people of medically incurable conditions. Someone came in with, with knee pain, 15 years, the doctor's giving her anti-inflammatories, telling her she needs knee surgery, et cetera, et cetera. And like in a one hour session, the pain is gone for the first time in 15 years and it hasn't come back. Like, and that kind of stuff happens all the time in the alternative medicine, various alternative medicine communities because they're standing in a different reality, in a different mythology. You can't separate mythology from reality either. Reality is relationship. So yeah, let's like let's let the questioning go all the way to this level of yeah, it's not about you know reason on the one hand and 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 ritual on the other hand, or here's science and here's religion. Science is a religion, it's a powerful, wonderful religion that has that that is associated with a certain state of individual and social being that is in many ways no longer serving us, needs to return to its proper place, uh, one among many mm -hmm. in a pluralistic, in a, in a, you know, epistemologically pluralistic society. Absolutely. And, and in my view and experience, Eastern mysticism is an intuitive science that deals with the unseen and the esoteric that we that the Western sort of scientific worldview doesn't recognize and understand as you've illuminated through, you know, your wife's example and 
you know, there's, this is a tremendous opportunity, I think, for us to be able to step out of, you said, the, the comfortable clothes of the mythology that we've worn that has afforded us certain ways of living in the world and certain powers and try on, and try on other ones, right? If we can do that, it takes maturity to do it, right? It takes, a, it takes a maturity and a willingness to be able to, to, be able to do that work. And um, actually, I, I really appreciate that the, the passion and clarity in which you've spoken, because it gives gives pause to say maybe people who are listening to say, "Wow, maybe I could do that too," right? Hmm. Well, I feel we're a good moment to bring in maybe a question or two, if you're open to it. Um, sure. I see, I see. There's two. There's one from Jared, which I want to bring in probably at the end, and then one from Lise and Blair, which I can add here. Can see on the bottom. I'd love to hear you all riff on culture, on a culture's fear of death and its relationship to our uncomfortable current affairs. Um, I thought that um, yeah, I'm sure it'd be interesting to hear hear Charles, and I'm sure with with Stephen, we'll probably touch on that too. Sure, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, I would even call it a phobia of death, uh, but it's totally natural based on the concept of what a self is that we're told by science and uh, you know, by, by our culture, which is you know, your discrete, separate individual, um, a flesh machine essentially, that is annihilated, uh, that generates consciousness, which is annihilated upon death. Mm. Um, if that's the case, then death is the ultimate catastrophe and of course, you're going to try to prevent it at all costs. So we have to prevent it and deny it at all costs and hide it because it's just too terrible to contemplate. Nothing means anything in that context. So we have an entire culture, especially a medical culture, in which the worst possible outcome is death. And uh, in which we we hide and deny it in so many ways from euphemisms to the sequestering of old people in nursing homes to like um, the distancing of us from the death involved in our food supply. I mean, there's just so many ways in which we have separated death from life. So of course, we've got this phobia of it. And of course, when it comes down to public policy around, around health, public health policy, we try to, we, 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 we sacrifice so much of life, of living, mm-hmm. on the altar of death avoidance and risk minimization. And that is inevitable, given our cultural understanding of a self. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Thanks for that. Um, I feel like uh, this last question that Jared's asking here, um, I think might be a helpful way to sort of bring forth the, the, the final weaving here. But he says, uh, Charles, do you have a narrative or can you come up with one that places the divisions that the pandemic has surfaced into a larger narrative of healing for Western society? Um, I would say Well, what we were talking about before, that we're shown in extreme form the uh, the direction in which we're headed. 
so that people can mm. um, make a choice. Uh, I've been forced to make a lot of choices, you know, where, whereas before there were a lot of acceptable compromises that I could make and stay in the system, yeah. you know, like, oh, that's a pretty good Montessori school, you know, oh, I can shop at Whole Foods, et cetera, et cetera. Now mm. uh, I'm being asked, do I want to stay in that and make, you know, sacrifices that I don't want to make? compromises I don't want to make, or do I step out? So this, I believe, is going to intensify, maybe in fits and starts, offering more and more people that choice, and also giving us the opportunity to more fully develop the alternatives, mm. the alternative stories, worldviews, the alternative technologies, so that when People are, are like, yeah, I've had enough of this. Um, I don't want my eighth booster shot. Uh, is there something else that that there is? Um, so that's one, you know, one one timeline is that more and more people defect from the brave new world, uh, and mm -hmm. until it falls apart. Um, and also, this is an opportunity for us to learn the technologies of peace, to learn the, the perceptions of interbeing, yeah. uh, of compassion, of humility, of forgiveness. When things, you know, because in the past, it didn't matter that much. Like, I have a different religious belief than you. So what? That's something that happens in church. But now, if I have a different religious belief from you, I'm, you know, we, we can't attend the same wedding mm. like like the, like these these you know like like vaccines have always had a religious exemption interesting like it it is a religious exemption it is a declaration of being in a radically different belief system mm. it's not just about do these cause harm or not as i was saying before it's about a whole relationship to the world a whole system a whole way of life so yeah, we have an opportunity to to like when the differences really count to practice the muscle of continuing to see each other as full sacred human beings. Yeah. And we're we're also what I'm seeing is that it's um a lot of things that we've we've taken for granted that have been built on the backs of those who came before us who have won through civil rights or have, you know, a built certain mechanisms of tolerance maybe with religion these things that we've taken for granted now they're coming up for the surface so that we know what it means to reawaken to it and reclaim it as our own within our generation right that at least that's something that i'm feeling that questions around what does it mean to be in a participatory democracy what does it mean to question fundamental human rights and freedoms that many of us have assumed because of living in you know countries where it was given to us now it's being threatened and challenged and it's reawakening us to that you know mm. well i think this might be time to find a way to close and um i want to offer gratitude to you charles for joining us to kick off the pandemic as a prism and to zamir my co-host in this uh, journey in this weaving and yeah any final sort of thoughts or words to leave uh, the listeners with what just came to me was, may it be messy. Mm. Um, not sure if I really actually want to wish that on you, but uh, 
um, maybe it's like, uh, may we hold the messiness well. Let's let's put it that way. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. Okay, well, thanks to all of you for tuning in as well to our first conversation. The recording will be available to all of you. And um, join us for our next conversation happening next week with evolutionary biologist Elizabeth Sartoris. And um, onward we go.